up, party people? It's Talib Kweli, the BKMC, the MCEO. I love the fact that y'all checking out the People's Party and showing us a lot of love. You know what we do? We're bringing you all the live guests. We're bringing you the best podcast on the internet. Just make sure you subscribe and leave a review. People's Party, Talib Kweli. Let's go. What's up, party people? It's Talib Kweli. This is the People's Party. I'm still on remote location in quarantine. We're still in lockdown. I'm still in the People's Party trap house. And we still got Jasmine Lee in the place to be. Give it up for my lovely co-host, Jasmine Lee. What's up, Jasmine? How you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Welcome to the People's Party. This guest today, I think, is going to be a treat for people who like real, real, real lyricism and dedication to hip-hop music. This is the type of guest that we built this show around. You know what makes me happy about doing People's Party? I get to talk to people and have conversations that I would have in my normal life. Mm -hmm. But I get to have them for the masses. And um, we get to do deep dives. And um, shout out to Combat Jack. Shout out to Gil Noble. Shout out to the people we model the show after. Because I feel like I want the level of this show to be on the level of work that this next guest does. That he puts into his music. Today we have one of the undisputed best rappers ever. Truly your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Um, he rose to fame as part of Bad Meets Evil with Eminem. His most re recent record, Allegory, has a track called I Don't Age for a very good reason. This man keeps getting better and better and better and studying his craft and mastering his craft. He's one of my favorite people, one of my favorite MCs. Over 20 years, he's a veteran. Man. Ladies and gentlemen, we got the fantastic Royce the Five Nine on the People's Party. Let's go! Hey, what's up, Royce? My brother, That's my brother, clap. my brother, man. Thank you, thank you so much for You're that. Gonna have to add some for those, claps. For those, for those kind words, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, man. Thank you, um, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was rambling a little bit, I think, in the intro because I was trying to find the words, and a lot of what you do is indescribable to me. Like, you know, what I'm saying I had an intro on paper, or whatever, but I'm I'm really trying to put into words how much I'm inspired by you lyrically and how much I'm inspired by you as an artist. I say lyrically because I put lyrics first. I think you do too. But not just lyric lyrically, your musical choices um, throughout your career. Um, I Thank appreciate you, man. it. Likewise. Likewise, brother. Likewise, um, man. Okay. Well, your dedication to the craft has you in groups like Prime, Slaughterhouse, Bad Meets Evil. The best people working, the best producers, the best MCs, DJ Premier, Everybody in Slaughterhouse, Eminem, people, Black Thought. You have multiple songs for Black Thought. The best of the best want to work with you. Um, how does that feel? It feels fantastic, man. I mean, I just, I'm just a kid from Detroit who used to go to the Ebony Showcase, open <laughs> mic, you know what I'm saying, every Tuesday. Um, mm -hmm. The first time I went to the hip-hop shop, I was 18 years old. Tell them about the hip hop shop in Detroit, because people. The hip hop really shop, know. the hip hop shop in Detroit. It was originated by Maurice Malone, who was a, um, a clothing designer from Detroit. Um, he opened up this spot called the Hip Hop Shop, where we would go weekly, once a week, and um, there would be like this big cipher, and everybody from my generation, from Slum Village to Eminem, to everybody from D12, uh, Beretta, uh, ev just everybody that you know from Detroit, Elzai. Um, 
and this just be an open mic. Big proof, proof was hosting, and it would be just like a big circle, and he would be passing the mic around. I went in there and got chewed up and spit out by those guys. <laughs> I realized I realized that I wasn't as good as I thought I was, mm-hmm. and I start I started going to the spot called the Ebony Showcase. Mm-hmm. And when I went to the Ebony Showcase, the scene was a little bit different. You know, the people were in front of you. You were on the stage. It was elevated a little bit. You got to choose the beat. You know, you could spit, you know, some 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 written shit. And it wouldn't you wouldn't be in a position to where you can get gone. Because that's what happened to me, by the way. I got gone. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, I developed my confidence there. And if it wasn't for there, I probably wouldn't even be rapping today. Because I was thinking about quitting after my experience. Oh, no. Shot. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean. Yeah. So like success, you know, success becomes more and more subjective, you know, the, the older you get, you know. So mm-hmm. I always I always just man, if, I used to think to myself, if I could just get into the game and get Redman to respect me, Razkaz to respect me, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like just to say that I'm dope, like that's success to me. So to work with guys like you, Black Thought, you know, what I mean, like the, the people who I work with, man, it's like a dream come true. So that's like that's like one of the things I can kind of look at. You know, if I have those days where, you know, you have good days, you have bad days. If I have mm-hmm. one of those days where it's just like one of my down days, I can always look at that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about your first appearance on Stretch and Bobbito with Eminem. What was your mood walking in that day? Um, I didn't have a I didn't have a clear understanding of who Stretch and Bobbito was. <laughs> I didn't realize how legendary of a situation that Marshall was putting me in. Mm-hmm. I just knew that he got a deal. He had me with him and he was trying to convince everybody that I was nice too. And I just had to step up to the plate. You know what I'm saying? Like back then you could have three or four raps that you recycling over and over and over again. Cause it was before the internet. You know what I mean? So it's like, no one knew. Now, if you spit one thing, it's like you're throwing it on the floor. So yep. you can't, you can't use it again. So we, me and Ember had like the same two, three raps, maybe four raps. Mm-hmm. And that we would be saying at every radio station and we were just making our rounds, just going anywhere that we could. Just kind of like trying to build a buzz. And we were like a team, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I remember just going in there and thinking to myself, don't forget raps, don't forget anything. Right. And just, you know, just do the best that I could. I didn't know. I didn't realize that it was stretching Bobito until later. You know what I mean? Like I got like more of an understanding of the whole New York scene and how legendary that those guys were and how, you know, how much of an opportunity that was for me. Word up, word up. Um, you have a song called Feel Nigga that I didn't realize until recently. I was because I was listening to it recently, and you and I sampled the same Malcolm X speech because I have a song called In the Field on my project with uh Styles P. Uh mm-hmm. with Malcolm X House House Nigga Feel Feel Nigga uh verse. So I, I I think you and me are similar in many, 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 many ways. Another way we're similar is that one of my favorite songs from you is Tabernacle. Mm. And I feel like Tabernacle really captures the essence of Race to Five Nine as an artist. And you are very autobiogra- autobiographical, more so than most artists. Like you say, you actually say, I promise not to lie in not one of these verses. Um, what made you write Tabernacle? I had just got sober. Tabernacle mm-hmm. Tabernacle was the first song that I wrote when I got sober. Okay. And um, that was eight years ago. Very clear and, uh, song. Yeah, man. Because it was, it, was, it was my first real moment of clarity with rapping period you know what i mean because mm-hmm. prior to that it was like everything was just alcohol induced you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so it was just a whole lot of rapping <clears throat> about how good i could rap mm-hmm. which is which is cool to a degree but there's a ceiling there 
Mm-hmm. You know, once we've established that you're good at rapping, now what? What do you have right. to say? You know, so um, it wasn't until I got sober that I realized I had something to say. And I realized that I did have a story. And um, I also realized that every artist should have at least one album that's a self-defining album. Mm-hmm. You know, that one album that you can listen to and say, okay, we know who you are now. And then you can go wherever you want after that. So um, when I first got sober, it took me probably like a year to be able to write something. Mm-hmm. It was a wow. tough, tough, tough time for me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I thought I was, I thought it was over. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. so um, a lot of those memories from the song started to hit me. And I just started, when I didn't go searching for it, it started coming to me. It came looking for you. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, I just started taking it and just writing it down. The song just kind of penned itself. And I always knew that I wanted to tell that story. And I actually tried to tell that story a couple times while I was drunk. Couldn't get it. Yeah, it's not just that the rhymes are, are great, but it's also the narration in between the songs and the way you set it up. And um, I feel like that song sets the stage for Book of Ryan, which, you know, a lot of times when I see you or get to speak to you, I mention to you how I, how much I love that album because it's so personal. Um, and, you know, songs like Boblo Boat, um, you know, tell people what the Boblo Boat is and what Boblo, Boblo Island is. Boblo is like our great adventure, but it was like you had Cedar Point in Ohio and then you had Boblo where it was actually right across the water. So you would you would go down, you would get on a boat, and this was like the affordable amusement park for people that were in a hood in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And it was like the ride over to the island was an experience because uh-huh. they would have like parties and just things for the kids to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like just crazy shit just went on on the boat. You know what I'm saying? Fights, right. all type of shit that you can think of. Like Adventureland. Yeah. And then like the, the actual <laughs> island was a whole nother experience. And um, right. just coming up in the kind of household that I came up in, like any any opportunity to just get out of the element for a minute and go somewhere as a family where nobody's arguing with each other. My mom right. and my dad getting along. My brother not saying no stupid shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> we all just having fun. Like, it was like, we we just, right. I, you just cherish those moments. You know what I mean? And I, I told myself when I was doing the Book of Ryan that I didn't want to do an album to sound like I was sad or I was, like, regretful of anything. Like, I wanted to mm-hmm. speak about the good times, but I also wanted to touch on the bad times because all of these times is what makes me who I am today. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, I feel yeah. like I, I know you because of that album and, and the song Amazing, man, that, that song is so, that song is like a movie. But before I, before I go any further, um, what do you have against Mork and Mindy? Listen, <laughs> I love I Mork, and love Mindy. Mork and Mindy. <laughs> I love Mork and Mindy, but I never loved anything that my big brother loved too much. Right. You know okay. what I'm saying? Yeah. Because he was like, he was like my antagonist, you know, in the house. You know what I mean? So uh, like, if I love something too much, then he always got to find like the other show. You know what I mean? So it's like if he okay. gets to the TV first and he's watching Mork and Mindy and I want to watch something else or I felt the way when when you hit that bar and I was like, you said uh, you said he'd be watching that Nano Nano shit. I'm like, that was my show back. <laughs> <laughs> I fuck See, with Mork and Mindy I, um, too. I fuck with it too. 
I came up with a great system for me and my sisters and I gave everybody certain days where they could have the TV. And because I came up with the system, I got to pick my days first. So I made sure I picked the days of my favorite shows. But uh, <laughs> on, on the song Cocaine, you say your father chose you over cocaine and then Bobolo Boat that you were just speaking of. You talk about you and your brother taking your first drinks and then growing up to be alcoholics. So um, you said you've been sober since 2012 um, after your DUI. And you said you got sober for your kids because they didn't really know you. Um, do you see the parallels? Uh, do, does being sober make you a better artist? I think so. I think so. I think being sober when you have a problem, when you're an alcoholic, makes you a better everything. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just just taking that taking that leap of faith and um, believing in yourself enough to you know to change everything especially when everything that you did was just like contingent upon you know how drunk you can get and how comfortable you can be because of alcohol to do so you know like whether mm-hmm. it's interviews or it's, it's writing raps it's like training a dog to go use it outside you know what i'm saying like i literally trained myself to do everything under the influence so it's like that whole process of just retraining myself you know it was a it was a long ordeal so yeah i think it made me a better, a better everything. And I did it, you know, like I, I did it. I kind of like follow suit with what my dad did, you know, like my, my dad, my dad is a great man because he, I know there were times where he could have done like illegal things or, you know, he never did that. He never did that. You know, like we come home from school, something may be turned off. Maybe the lights are turned off or something like that. Dad, the light's not working. Don't worry about it. They'll be back on tomorrow or some shit like that. Nice. Sit, sit, light candles, you know what I'm saying? Or if like the, the the heat is off or something like that, just pull open the pull open the oven, the oven door. Right. Heat up the house and just until he gets it turned back on. He always figured out a way to get it turned back on. Never did anything illegal that I can think of. Well, there was one Christmas where we got like a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> Looking back at it in retrospect, it's like something he had to so, did something. But, what did you do? <laughs> but but like besides that, just thinking about it, it's like damn, because a lot of people would have cracked and just tried to, because he had a lot of fucked up niggas around. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like he had a lot of people around. A, lot, a couple of my uncles were pretty crazy. So mm-hmm. the fact that he kind of held it together like that, to stay honest, worked a worked a regular job, <clears throat> and um, you know, all while having a drug a drug dependency, and then figuring out a way to kick it. To be there for us, you know, I, I I feel like that that's um that's admirable because a lot of people wouldn't have had the strength to do to do that. When you talk about uh, being a better artist off of alcohol, it goes. Um, I know I do stand up comedy, and as of the last year, I've been doing my sets where I don't drink before I go on stage. I don't drink until after I go on stage, and it's just like a different feeling when you're on stage and it's just like a different like who I did that and you get to feel the nerves and really work through it when you're doing it sober. Yeah, well, you know, it started off with me just um I took my first drink with, with Dr. Dre when I was 21 years old. Wow. So so I um he offered me a drink and it wasn't even like a peer pressure situation. I just didn't want to say no cuz it was Dr. Dre. Mm-hmm. You know, and the problem, you know, the problem with with, with looking at things like that is like People, you know, like not Dr. Dre, but other people who don't mean you well, you know, like they smell blood when they see that you that you move like that. And what they'll do is they'll put you in situations to where you can you'll have to drink. You have to take a drink and then, you know, like to get things from you. You know what I mean? Like you take Mm -hmm. like 
four or five, you get in this situation four or five times, you look up and no publishing, you know what I'm saying? So it's just like, you gotta like, you gotta learn that you have to draw the line somewhere. And like discipline is, is, is that should be the caveat at all times. You know what I mean? Like never come in and just do as the Romans do. I did as the Romans did in many situations, you know what I'm saying? So um, I took the long way, you know what I mean? So I had to learn a lot of my, my uh, things that I learned. I had to learn them trial and error the hard way. Yeah, you just described the whole business. You just broke it down to yeah. a T. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, first time I met you was with Kino and Courtney Brown mm-hmm. running around New York City, partying, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a very special relationship with Kino. Mm-hmm. Um, he introduced you to Eminem, as you say in the song, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people are changing and switching and firing managers. And what what's your bond with Kino like and how did it take shape and why is it so strong? You know, man, I I, just, I only know how to be in a relationship one way. Mm. You know, that's why it's like, you know, like if I if I'm if I have like a connection with you and we're friends, mm-hmm. you know, like nothing can change that but you, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like a lot of people, they fire their managers because they see some sort of they see some sort of upside, some sort of imaginary upside. And sometimes there is an upside. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like. You can't build something unless you're willing to kind of like stand in solidarity long enough. You know what I mean? You go from I've seen people go from manager to manager to manager. I'm not real good at dealing with a whole lot of different personalities like that. I knew I wasn't really that good at rapping when I came into the game and I knew he wasn't that good at managing when he came into the game. <laughs> so, you know, like we both made our mistakes in real time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um it's just that much sweeter. It's that it's that much sweeter when you can just when you can just kind of build together, grow together. And, uh, you know, it's the same way with my wife, man. Like we've been together since high school, you know, oh, and wow. I, I just I just don't I don't really bail out of relationships unless it's, you know, unless you force my hand. But I'm a cancer. Mm-hmm. So if you force my hand, I'm really, really good at never speaking to you again. You know what I mean? Okay. But, but if I love you, I'm stuck with you no matter what, no matter okay. what. Now, speaking of Dr. Dre, which you brought up earlier, um, there's a couple of different stories about your initial deal or uh, supposed deal with with Aftermath and that you took the Tommy Boy deal over the Aftermath deal, but that you may have regretted taking the Tommy Boy deal. Is that a true story? Um, Yeah, but I'm not. Regret is not the right word to use. Okay, you know, some you know how you you can look at a lot of things, a lot of decisions that you made. And just think to yourself, what if I had made a different decision? I wonder mm-hmm. how that would have went, you know, but um, I mean, I feel like everything happened how it was supposed to happen. I'm certainly, you know, I'm certainly happy with where I'm at today. But um, yeah, it was just a situation where I was young. I didn't have guidance, you know, and I felt like I asked all the questions that needed to be asked. And um, all the questions led me to going where the most perceived money was at so right. at that time they were offering me a million dollars and um dre was offering me a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar deal with unlimited dre beats so to me that read as a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar deal you know and this was this was um this was uh i'm 19 um we're working on the chronic i'm writing stuff for the chronic um and I was feeling like that we were just rocking regardless. Dre was always like, yo, I'm rocking with you regardless. You know what I mean? So I went where I, you know, I went where the, where I felt like the money was at. You know, I did a 
you know, we did like a um, uh, we had like a meeting to sign it. You know, we had Dre on the on the conference line on the phone. We had M, you know, M was involved, and I just felt like you know it was like the logical next step. But when it wasn't a part of the umbrella, mm-hmm. you know, eventually that show. You know what I'm saying? Right. So. Um, there's another story that I've heard where you know we you you spoke about you were writing on the chronic and you've done a lot of ghost writing and people know you as a ghost writer. Um, but there's a story that Kino did an interview where he said that you and M wrote for Dre and Dre didn't like it. <laughs> and then Dre wanted you to not bring Kino around. Is there, is there truth to that story? The Kino part is true. Okay. Kino, okay. Kino. Um, I mean, quiet, you know, Kino. Kino is yeah, like, I know Kino. So imagine, <laughs> imagine, imagine Kino back then, you know, we all kids, you know, we mm-hmm. haven't even traveled before, bro. Mm-hmm. Like we haven't, been on an airplane, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So like Dr. Dre calls my mother's house. Mm-hmm. My dad answers the phone and he says, is Royce there? And he says, who's calling? He says, Dr. Dre. Uh-huh. My dad comes in the room and says, Ryan, you got a Dr. Dre on the phone for you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when we went out there, Kino was just excited, man. And he was just mm-hmm. talking when he shouldn't have been talking, you know? Right. And um, the guy he was talking to, he he was on a, I was doing an interview on a, on a, it was a phone interview and Kino was on the three way and somehow Kino ended up in the conversation talking and um, what he was saying wasn't a part of the interview. It was just, mm-hmm. you know, it was, I guess you could say off the record, but nobody right. never established that it was, yo, this is going to be off the record. Uh. He was speaking, he was speaking actually candidly. And um, the guy who he was speaking to, I guess he felt like that that was some, some kind of juicy shit to put in the, in the article. So mm-hmm. what he said was, I watched M sit Dre down like a pupil mm. and, and something, something along those lines. And, and mm-hmm. Dre didn't like that. Um, mm-hmm. The way that he worded it, the context that he put it in, he just made it look way worse than what Kino was saying. Right. Kino was just trying to kind of like give Marshall props. Right. And, you know, it blew up in his face. Dre, Dre didn't like that. So Dre was pissed off, but he never told me like, don't bring Kino around or anything like that. You know, like, right. We were already kind of like going our respective ways anyway. You know what I mean? So. Right. Um, now, obviously, you've been asked about your relationship with Eminem a million times, but it's a very, 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 very special relationship. Is there anything that you haven't said about Eminem? Um, and do you agree? Do you agree when people say that you two mirror one another lyrically or stylistically? Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of us from Detroit do Well, mm-hmm. from my generation. Um, I think everybody, everybody circa 95, 96 from Detroit, mm-hmm. all of us had similarities. Elzai, yeah. um, Proof, all the D12 guys, Obi Trice. It's just, a, it's just like a, it was a certain kind of language that we spoke at the hip hop shop. We all admired each other. We all pulled from each other. We all kind of vibed off each other. So, you know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of there's a guy named Fuzz Scooter back in the day who um, mm-hmm. him and him were very similar, very similar stylistically. You know, what I mean, like in. It's all Detroit shit. You know what I'm saying? So M kind of like introduced it to the world, but there are a lot of like, there are a lot of guys that kind of like shared that same, a similar style, but M just had his way of doing it that was just unique to him. Um, I've heard you say, well, I didn't hear you say, I read an interview where you talked about how Eminem is very competitive in the studio and he feels like he has to out-rap everybody on the song, whereas you're more like, let's just do a song, right? Mm-hmm. And so... The original Renegade was a song which you wanted, right? It was your song? 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's a conversation. So there's a conversation around who got the better verse, Jay Z or Eminem. So I want to know who you think got the better verse on the song, Jay Z, Eminem, or Race to Five Nine. I'm not in that equation. <laughs> I'm not in. I'm not in that equation because when uh, when we when me and Marshall did it, I just thought the song was okay. Okay. Mm. You know, like we it was just sitting. It was just sitting because, I mean. After years in the game of learning more about songwriting, mm-hmm. I learned that if you if we both attack the song the same way, this goes back to us being similar stylistically. Mm-hmm. We both attacked it the same way. We thought it was just a cool song. Mm-hmm. Take my vocals off and then Jay attacks it a different way. He actually doesn't attack it. He lays back in the pocket mm-hmm. and he's his his content is almost like the juxtaposed version of whatever what, what Marshall's talking about. Mm. It makes for a more complete song and then you put it on a classic album and then it turns into a moment which blows what we did out of the water and turns it into a whole nother situation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that make the song special is that you can't really say who had the best verse. All you can do is go, you prefer this one over this one. So it's a preference thing. Right. You can't truly say one is better than the other. I agree in my with opinion. That. In my opinion. I agree with that. Um, in 2003, Eminem had to apologize for some very early lyrics where he pretty much told people not to date black women. Um, it's called black women are dumb and he called black women bitches. Um, how did you feel about that track? And did you say something to him? Um, is it important that people can grow past racist things that they said in the past or have done? Well, yeah, when that when that song surfaced, <clears throat> me and me and Marshall, actually, we weren't we weren't speaking. Mm. So there was there were like there was like a long period of time where we didn't talk actually like a decade. You know what I mean? So I had like this big beef like with with, with D12, which is his crew, mm-hmm. as you guys know. Mm-hmm. And um, when the song came out, I was surprised like everybody else. Um, They tried to get me to like as much as I felt like those guys were going against me. I couldn't bring myself to like honestly like play into it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like just me knowing Marshall, me knowing everything that he goes through in life, he writes about it. You know what I'm saying? He's been doing that ever since he's been a little kid. You know what I mean? So you come up in certain environments. I tell this story all the time. Like I I moved we moved to the city called Oak Park when I was 10, when I was 10 years old. And the first thing that happened when I got there the first day is I got called a nigger. And that was the first time that somebody used that word against me like a weapon. You know what I mean? And it was just like, if I had just stayed in Oak Park, never would have went out to fuck with Dr. Dre, never would have traveled, never would have met M, different people. Like, I probably would have just saw the world through that lens and I probably, it would have forced me to generalize all white people as this. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, based off of me feeling like, okay, they don't like me, so I don't like them. So I'm just, whatever. I don't feel like a black person can be a racist, but whatever, whatever the, whatever the equivalent is to that. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I can understand being in a certain environment. And, um, you know, you with a, you with a girl, you a white dude, you with a girl, she do some shit to piss you off. Now you writing about it and you saying some shit that you feel can hurt her feelings. It's like the kid that called me a nigga. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't make it right. I understand it. But as a man, you got to make that right. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So just when they when they came to me about it, it was really nothing that I could say. It was just mm-hmm. like, yo, that shit is unfortunate. If I was talking to him at the, at the time, 
I probably would have had some things to say to him. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I wasn't around. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, it never it, I didn't want to play into it. I didn't want to play into it. Plus, I didn't like the way that Benzino was doing what he was doing. You know right. what I mean? Like it, it just it took some of the some of the sting out of it. You know what I mean? Like it was just, yeah. just coming just coming from him and the intent and all of that. I just didn't want to get involved in that. You know what I mean? But I mean, just looking at it in retrospect, man, it's a it's a terrible it's a terrible thing to happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But we grow from it. Um, fast forward thirty years, and uh, Eminem did apologize for that. And um, you know, he was a teenager, and you know, I don't I don't you know I don't have to deal with that because I'm not someone who grew up with him. I'm not somebody who is has that relationship with him. So it's like, for me, you know, I think for you as a, the way that you're talking about, I understand. It's like me talking about Kanye, you know, shit that Kanye says and does where I'm like, yeah, I understand, but I I, I can't fuck with that shit. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think that um, what's interesting about Eminem is that his participation in hip hop for me has always been very pure. And I feel like he does a good job of supporting the culture and participating in it. And when I talk about the culture, I'm talking about not just taking it for granted that this is a black art form started mostly by black and brown people. Um, his resistance to Donald Trump on the on the big stage, I think is very important. I mm-hmm. think it's it's a very, very good statement. I think when he when he says on white America, when he says, let's do the math, if I was black, I would have so half. Uh, I feel like he's referring to you and to D12 and to people that he was around. Um, do you feel like you, y'all would have sold more records if, if y'all were white artists like Eminem? Um, I think part of the reason why he sold so many records is because he, he was telling a story that we haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. You know, like all of us have similar um, kind of stories that we can, you know, that, that all correlate with each other. We're all from, we all come from nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, we all can relate in that way. But mm-hmm. when you come and you tell the, the trailer park story, mm-hmm. That's like some shit we never heard before. And then it's like, he's some shit we never seen before. I'm just going off of the way that we reacted to him when we seen him at the open mic. Cause like mm-hmm. when he first started like rapping and coming around and rapping, he was getting booed. Mm-hmm. But the first time that I seen him at the hip hop shop, he was battling, you know what I'm saying? And he was, he reminded me of AZ and he was nice. I had never mm-hmm. seen no shit like this in my life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it was a big deal. But it wasn't like I was looking at it like, yo, he's going to be, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't know all of that, but I just knew that I had this was something different. You know what I mean? So um, I think when you add Dre to the equation, you know, um, when he came across that My Name Is sample, bro, it all came together like magic. Mm -hmm. It was literally like he scrolled past the part. He played it. M said, hi, my name is. Dre said, what what, would, what was that? What'd you just say? He said, I said, hi, my name is. Oh, no, you got to say that. It literally mm. was like that. Mm. And that, to me, is what really what really birthed him. You know what I mean? Because he was, um, before he did the Dre deal, he was going to sign with Doug Down. Mm. And I think if he would have signed to Doug Down, and I say this with all, all respect, I think he would have sold half. You know what I mean? Because yeah. he, that that's what he is. He's an underground MC. Yeah. Dre just figured out a way to bring more out of him. And I, I think that's what a great producer does. Yeah, I understand. I think that's a great answer. Um, 
Now you defended Eminem when he was criticized by Lord Jamal. So that time you decided to, you decided to step up and defend him. You highlighted the fact that Eminem has always maintained that he's a guest in the house of hip hop. So essentially Eminem agrees with Jamal on that particular part of it. Um, he honors that he paid his dues, but he's never, he understands why people might look at him like an interloper. Um, why was it important for you to stand up for Eminem in that situation and not speak on other situations? I mean, when people ask me, when they were asking me about it back then, they wanted me to like, they wanted me to feed into him being a racist. And yeah. I wasn't going to uh, do that, even though we weren't, we, me and him weren't speaking. I just, I'm not, I'm not with trying to, you know what I'm saying? Like lie, like my experiences with Marshall, it's like, um, I've been around racist, racist kids with racist parents. Mm-hmm. I feel like I know the difference, at least what, what I perceive is the difference. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to put him in that category, even, you know, even with our relationship at the worst that it could possibly be, mm-hmm. you know. So like the Lord Jamar thing, um, it started with um, one of the media outlets called Marshall, the king of hip hop. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. he didn't call himself the king of hip hop. Right. A magazine called him. I think it was Rolling Stone or some shit. Mm-hmm. And um, Lord Jamar was, was was speaking on that, and um, somehow it turned into it, it was almost like Lord Jamar was like responding to him saying he was the king. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. I think Vlad was kind of like hyping it up a little bit, and then you know yeah. he was just talking about like he don't fuck with the shit that M talks about, and you know people mm-hmm. don't yeah. listen to M in the hood, and you know like you know just all of that type of shit. I think mm-hmm. when I chimed in with Lord Jamar was on Twitter. Um, when he said that um, M never did, what did he say? He said he never, he never had any real contributions, no, no real contributions. And I was like, now that that can be that can be debunked. Like this, mm-hmm. this can be fact based. And that's what made me chime in. And I was like, Lord Jamar, I'm, I want to challenge you, but I promise I'll be respectful. These were my mm-hmm. exact words that I typed on Twitter. So I wasn't looking to like make him feel any less of a legend or anything like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I said, yo, um, he, he put, he put me in the business. He put D12 on, you know what I'm saying? Like he made all of them rich. He fucking, mm-hmm. he put, you know, he, he signed 50, you know what I mean? Um, I can't remember everything else that I said, but all of these mm-hmm. are legitimate contributions. These are fact-based contributions. Say what you want about the man. The man's done his, he's, he's done his part so far. You know what I mean? Like whether he could have done more or less, that turns that turns back into an opinion again. Yeah, that's subjective. You know what I mean? So me and him, you know, we just disagreed on that. Mm -hmm. That was it. You know, and then they kept talking about it on Vlad. Kept talking about it on Vlad. Well, you know how Vlad do. Somewhere along (laughs) the line, somewhere along the line, I get called like a house nigga or something. Right. Mm. Now we're talking about something different. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I think when we started to have words, it was after that. <clears throat> you know what I mean? But it's very, very difficult to be this close to somebody like Marshall who um, who doesn't he doesn't use his platform to do a whole lot of talking and like mm-hmm. coming coming back to clarify everything. And you know what I mean? Like it, it just is what it is on that level. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so, so it's very easy, I think, to just assume that he's a certain way. And it's just very difficult for me as his friend. You know, I know that he's a student of the game. You know what I mean? I know that there's admiration for, for, for brand Nubian. 
you know, I know that he's not one of those guys that he's trying to peg him to be. Mm-hmm. And it's like, damn, man, I wish like it, it's really guys out there like this that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Like you should be talking to them like they're right in your face. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? This dude is like been a student of the game the whole time. Nothing but contributions. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's just like, I don't know, man. You know, that shit like that always rubbed me the wrong way. But I mean, man, listen, I'm going to stand up for Marshall because that's my friend. I'm always going to do that. I'm always going to stand up for him. I'm always going to stand up for him. You know what I mean? Just like I feel like he would stand up for me. But I didn't want to I didn't want to create a situation where I'm disrespecting Lord Jamar. But I'm mm-hmm. just I'm not always the best with my words. Quad. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes, you know, You're pretty I, I good say with things, words, but I, I say things the right way. I say things the wrong way. Sometimes <laughs> the good thing about me is I can always admit when I'm wrong and I don't have a problem apologizing. Mm-hmm. Do you do you ever get frustrated that you feel like you that people look to you to answer for Eminem? I don't think people look to me, um, but I do get frustrated when people say, why are you always answering for him? Why can't he talk for himself? There go Royce. There go Royce. Cooning for the white boy again. You know what I mean? Like, that's the only thing that, that kind of frustrates me sometimes. You know what I mean? Because I think um, integrity is a big thing to me. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? And and like, if you don't, if you don't know me and you, and you just assume, then you would think that there's some imaginary position that I'm trying to hold on to mm-hmm. being next to Marshall. What people don't realize is Marshall is my friend. Like I've never stood, but I've never put my name on anything that I didn't believe in, that that I didn't that that, that wasn't about integrity, that I didn't feel was the truth. You know, mm-hmm. if it was something I don't agree with, then I'm not gonna ride with it. You know what I mean? Like I don't work for Marshall. I've never been an employee of Marshall. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he's my friend. You know what I mean? That's that's it. Like the same way I ride for him, I ride for all of my friends. They used to say the same thing about Joe. He always sticking up for Joe. He always, you know what I'm saying? Like same same thing. Like, you know, like people had a problem with me understanding Joe, you know, and that's just me and Joe didn't like each other in the beginning. But once we got in a group with each other and I got to know him, now I love Joe. So now right. you can't say anything bad about Joe. If you say something <laughs> bad about Joe, I'm going to have a problem with that. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. It's just how I am with all my friends. Yeah. No doubt. Um, now you brought up uh, Maurice Malone and the hip hop shop and the whole history of Detroit uh, hip hop. What I think is interesting for me as an outsider is that, first of all, first of all, off top, people undervalue the contributions that Detroit artists have made to hip hop. And what Detroit hip hop represents to the music, everybody from M and D12 to yourself to Slum Village, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a stand for Detroit music, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. like, but as far as the Detroit hip hop scene, because y'all were so competitive, because y'all were so, for lack of a better word, lack of opportunity, right? Because the the, the music business was on the coast. Mm-hmm. It seemed like it got volatile real quick. And there seemed to be a lot of tension and fights and beef. And you had a legendary, if I do say so myself, beef with proof, rest in peace, where y'all almost really got into it. And y'all ended up locked up in the same, like locked up together. Is that mm-hmm. accurate? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about yeah. that? Um, Well, the beef, the beef wasn't necessarily with proof. Mm-hmm. Personally. Proof is actually um, 
Proof is actually the only person in the group that I had a relationship with outside of Marshall. Okay. Um, Denine, Vaughn, and Swifty, I never, I didn't know them. You know what I mean? So it's really, really, really easy for us to um, not like each other based off of things that, you know, outside forces are kind of like trying to stir up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, everybody just kind of wanted to um, find their place as men, you know, um, just out here, just out here in the, in the streets of Detroit, out here in the game, in, in hip hop. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, man, black men searching. You know what I mean? We we we're we're, we're guarding something. We don't even know mm -hmm. what we're guarding, but we just know we're not bagging down. Mm -hmm. And we don't understand the importance of unity and you know, like doing things as a collective and thinking as a collective, you know, like it's every man for himself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So um what happened with me and proof is um proof is kind of like always like a leader, like a mm -hmm. boss. You know, and since it was them versus me, quite naturally, when we finally run into each other, it's me and Proof. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So um, we just bumped into each other. <clears throat> I think it was like it was either the day after my birthday it was my birthday. And I was downtown and um, Proof came around the corner with, a, you know, with a bunch of with a bunch of people. And um, he was just like, what's up? You know what I'm saying? And I was just like, what's up? You know what I mean? So it was kind of like. It's kind of like a standoff, you know, um, God rest his soul. I don't want to like say anything that's like I shouldn't be saying, you know what I'm saying? Of course. Um, one thing led to another. Um, both of us pull out guns and we end up locked up together. Mm. And um, just us being able to speak finally, you know, at one point in time, me and Proof took our sons to Chuck E. Cheese together. You know what I mean? Like. We had our own relationship outside of Marshall. We actually were cool with each other first before Marshall. I was cool with Proof before I was cool with Marshall. Okay. So, um, you know, we just had a chance to talk, man. And um, the valuable lesson that I learned from that is that through communication, you know, anything is possible. You know, most beef aren't based in anything. You know what I mean? Like it, most beefs escalate due to lack of communication. And that's, that's kind of like what happened there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, once we were able to talk and just kind of like put things in perspective, we squashed it pretty quick, you know, but we talking about a beef that lasted years. Right. After getting out of jail for a DUI, you dropped the first bar exam mixtape. Um, there's been three. There's been three now. How important was that project to mode of therapy and healing? Yeah. Bar exam was like, a, um, it was just like my, my, um, my, my getaway. You know, um, when I came, when I got out of jail, I went to jail for drinking and driving. And um, when when that happened, it was like a lot of people going, uh, he ain't coming back from that. He ain't coming mm -hmm. back from that shit. You know what I'm saying? It was like, that was like the fuel. I needed to hear that. You know what I mean? I needed to hear that. And it was my reason to focus, to focus and um, just go, just go and prove that I belong. You know what I mean? And that was the bar exam mixtapes is like the the installment that I started doing that separated me from just the conversation of Eminem, D12, you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Beefing, you know what I'm saying? All of these negative things. <clears throat> it's just me and my raps. And right. it was, it was like, it was like my way of letting you know, of showing you that you, you're supposed to just take me serious. Just me and my raps mm -hmm. and stop associating me with all of these, all of these transgressions that I'm pulling along with me mm -hmm. as I try to figure out, 
how to not have this dark cloud hanging over my head. You know what I mean? Like I'm really trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to understand why I'm not getting support from my city. Like I can't figure out for the life of me what's going on. Mm-hmm. Until I until one day it dawned on me, hey, why don't you just start supporting people from your city? Mm-hmm. Why don't you show love? You know? And then I started yeah. doing that and everything just changed. I started to get love. I started to show love. I started to get love. I started right. to show support. I started to get support. Ain't it then funny I real- how that work? Yeah. Then I realized, mm-hmm. hey, people wasn't really against me after all. Especially people that I get cool with that used to not like me. They like so happy that I'm this cool. It's like, damn, man, I thought you was a dickhead. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and it's just like, it's just, it's, 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 man, it's so much to be said about just the growing process. You know, and I reached a point in life, man, where I just looked at everything in retrospect and was like, fuck, it never was about that. It never was mm. about that. It never was about that. Fuck, I thought it was about this shit the whole time. I thought it was about being mm. tough the whole time. I thought it was about, not, mm. it's, not, it's not about none of that shit. You know right. what I'm saying? So it, it's it, it's humbling. It's humbling. Word up. Um, you have a great relationship with DJ Premier. Um, mm-hmm. When DJ Premier played Boom on the Versus, I was in my house jumping up and down like, whoa, that's my shit. But that's like a, that's like an underground hit. It's like a hit. That's not a hit. It's like, it's not, it wasn't a big radio hit, but it's like, especially overseas, that record boom is just crazy. But then Fab was, he was like, what's this? He said something like, this is some new Royce. I was like, how Fab don't, how Fab is on the album with Royce and don't know boom. You know Fab what I'm know, he, he know boom. He know boom. <laughs> because when I, when I first met, when I first met Fab, uh-huh. we were in Miami. Uh-huh. We're in Miami, and he was like, um, he was like, yo, he came up to me, and I was about to go up to him because that's when he had, I can't deny it, I'm yeah, a fucking yeah. rider. And I was gonna tell him how nice I thought he was, and he came up to me and was like, yo, you a nice nigga, son. You a yeah. nice nigga, son. And he started quoting lines from Boom. Okay. And I was like, yo. He just didn't recognize it on that verse. He just yeah, didn't recognize it at that yeah. moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Probably because Premier played it against incarcerated Scarfaces. Yes, just like you, just like you said, you were you were at the crib jumping up and down. I was in yeah. my studio jumping up and down, like no, no, <laughs> Please no, don't else. feed me, don't feed me to the wolves. <laughs> um, now, tell me about how you developed your relationship with Premier, and I, I want to know: is Guru's ashes really on the in the studio, like you said? Yes, they were. Okay, they were, and um. <clears throat> I mean, I came, I, I went to New York so we can, um, so we can rehearse for the prime tour. Yeah. We both on that album too. So I'm glad to yeah, be on that yeah, album with you. Of course. He played me, your, he played me, he played me your verse. He played me your okay. verse and got me, he got me hyped up because I didn't know anything about the project. He was keeping okay. it a secret. Right. So, um, and I, I remember I was writing and I was like, what's this right here? He was like, this is Guru's Ashes. I'm like, what? Mm. Just sitting on a trackboard like that? <laughs> oh, that's a bar. That's, right, a that's a bar right there. You know what I mean? So, um, I mean, it was that simple. As far as me and his relationship, um, it was something that got just nurtured over the years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, he was one of the first people that I met when I got into the game. Um, you know, D&D Studios, yo, man, I, I wrote letters to D&D Studios. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I got the, the address off the, off the Bahamadia um, <laughs> single, single right. the cassette tape. And, um, you know, like it, it, that whole scene was just legendary to me. So um, when I got the Tommy Boy deal, the first thing that I said was I want to work with DJ Premier. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as you know, Kwa, like DJ Premier don't just be like, he, you can't just work with Premier. He has to agree that That's he'll right. work with you. 
You know what I mean? So they sent him my Tony Touch 50 MCs freestyle. Mm -hmm. And he listened to it and was like, all right, I fuck with him. All right, I'll do something with him. Mm -hmm. You know, and we got together. A couple studio sessions, worked worked on a song called My Friend the first time. And then the second studio session, we worked on Boom. Um, Legendary studio sessions. He kept me waiting probably four hours. Right. Until he got there. Got to the studio with this amazing story about how he saved these children from like a car crash. <laughs> that sounds like Brienne. Some fucking burning building, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's just like I was just like, bro, this guy is crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> and the second, the second time, um, we had spoke on the phone a couple of times. We got a little bit cooler with each other. And um I walked in and he was making the the boom beat. And I was like, what's this? And he was like, I'm about to I'm about to get on your beat in a minute. I'm about to make it in a minute. I was like, well, what, who, who are you making this for? He was like, oh, I'm making this for Capone and Noriega. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I looked around like, shit, I don't see Nori nowhere. No, I don't see Capone, I don't see Capone nowhere. <laughs> so I talked him out of that one. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So um, he ended up making Capone and Noriega something different and gave me that one. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 how that how that one happened. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then after that, we just we we stayed in touch. There's something about me he liked, man. I don't know. I don't know. We just we, we stayed in touch. Just likable. We stayed in touch and then, you know, we just one thing led to another after we looked up and had a fifteen year relationship. Mm-hmm. It just kinda was what it was. You know, it's one of those relationships that just stuck. Yeah, what do you think made him want to only sample Adrian Young for the Prime Project? It was actually an idea that my man Mike Haran had. Um, oh, shout out to Mike Haran. Yeah, yeah. Mike Mike had that idea for Slaughterhouse. And then, you know, the mm-hmm. guys, everybody wasn't like super into the idea. Mm-hmm. I thought the idea was really cool. Mm-hmm. And um I presented I presented it to Premier and was like, what do you think about doing something like this? Um we spoke about doing a joint project together, but mm-hmm. I knew it was gonna have to be at a time where I where he actually where he felt like I actually earned enough stripes. To, you know, actually do some shit like that with me. Right, right, right. You know, so um, I didn't know if he looked at me like that, but I figured it was worth a shot. You know what I'm saying? Right, so right, right. I approached him with it to see how he felt about it. And um, he was he was surprisingly res- responsive. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He, he wasn't. I didn't get him the first conversation, but I was able to talk him into it. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So um, I was just like, look, man, this would be this would be like a great way to just, you know, what I mean, like just something new to do. You know what I mean? It was when I, yeah. I just got sober, you know what I mean? Like I was looking for things. I was searching, I was searching for something, mm. something to do. And then, you know, one thing led to another. He start. he, he met with Adrian. He loved what Adrian did. Um, he loved Adrian's it. fantastic, man. I, I yeah. still listen to that black dynamite soundtrack just yeah. on the humbug. Like just, just, just put it on just to have it on. Yeah. He, he was like, he, he listened to what Tim did when he, when mm-hmm. he flipped it with the Adrian young shit for, for Hove. Mm-hmm. And, um, Prane was just like, yo, I think I can, I think I can kill it more than anybody. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And once he, once he, once he get in that bag, that's it. Right. That's it. It's over. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the rest is history. Okay. Let's talk slaughterhouse drama. Uh, <laughs> I, I know it's probably inevitable to happen that you guys had so many people in the mix, but um, slaughterhouse was started with a beef between you and Joe Budden over a battle that never really happened in New York. Can you share that story with us, please? Oh, it happened. Oh. Joe just wasn't there. Joe just wasn't there. But oh. um, so what it was supposed to be, my brother Chuck from All Hip Hop reached out and said he wanted me 
um, to be a part of a of a showcase where myself, Fonte, Mr. Fab from the Bay, Joe Button, and I was one more person I think I'm missing. Um, pardon me from whoever that is that I'm missing, but we were supposed to go out to SOBs and we were just gonna we're gonna rap verses and we're gonna have judges judge verses. You know what I mean? Um never once did he use the word battle. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I get there and I'm noticing something strange because Fonte dropped out. He's not there. So it's like now it's only me and Mr. Fab. Joe is not there. You and me, Mr. Fab got a great record together, by the way, for the people watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shout out to Mr. Fab. That's my dog. Yeah. So we were in the back. I'm in the back and Remy, Remy is in the back. And she's like, this is me. I'm meeting her for the first time. I'm a big fan of Remy. So I'm like, hey, Remy, how you doing? Say, what's up? She's like, why are you battling? And I was like, nah, nah, it's not going to be a battle. You know, we just go, you know what I'm saying? She was like, you going to win? <laughs> and I was like, nah, 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 you know, it's not going to be a battle. Then Craig G, Craig G come up to me like, yo, it's a battle. So just it's make sure that you're ready. Just make sure you're ready. I'm like, nah, 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 Craig there ain't going to be no battle. There ain't going to be no battle. You know, so I'm like, damn. So I'm getting kind of scared because it's like, <laughs> I'm not a freestyler. You know what I'm saying? Right, like, right, I, right. I just got my, I got my raps that I got from some right. songs that I'm, I was working on at the time. You know, so um, they're like, Joe Button is on his way. Joe told these people that um, his brother got shot and he's on his way. He had to tend to his brother and he's on his way. Knowing he wasn't coming. Wow. You know, so the whole crowd is waiting on Joe to show up to make a, you know, a magical appearance. Mm -hmm. Joe never shows up. So now it's just me and Mr. Fab. Mr. Fab is under the impression that he's battling. So he's ready to battle. And he's, he's a, a freestyler. He's, he's a, a freestyle freestyle battle monster. Yeah, so I'm like, yeah. man, so, and I ain't know about Mr. Fab at that time. So I was yeah. like, I just told him, I was just like, yo, man, just don't, don't aim none of your raps at me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and he was like, all right, cool. All right. right. He probably was thinking to himself, I don't have to aim them at you. Right. I'm about to tear your ass up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so, you know, like we, it's like, all right, go. I rap my rap. And you could tell that the crowd is expecting a battle because I'm rapping and they looking at me like, get to it, nigga. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. And then, you know, Mr. Fab, he started freestyling. They went crazy. And then, mm-hmm. that was it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I lose the battle, even though I wasn't <laughs> the battle. You was never in. I, lo- I lose the battle. <laughs> and then um, Joe, and I feel like he was one of the people who set me up for failure. He decides to he decides to speak on it. So um somebody sends me a clip of him speaking about the battle and how I look like shit. I look like shit in the battle. He was talking, oh, he was talking to DJ Envy in the interview. Uh-huh. I look like shit in the battle, and DJ Envy was like, that was brutal. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, like, I'ma beat both these niggas asses. <laughs> <laughs> and then Joe put out a, a freestyle where it was like, he dissed me in the freestyle. Damn. About how I fell off. So I'm like, man, okay. So like, I started working on bar exam too. Mm-hmm. And damn near the whole bar exam too is about Joe. The whole, <laughs> the whole bar exam too. I was just waiting, you know what I'm saying? Right. For him to come back and say something. But I think he felt like, yo, I dissed him for no reason. I kind of had that coming. Mm-hmm. He prepared some raps in return. Some of his people advised him not to. I was writing more raps about him. My people was advising me not to. 
And then I'm at the hospital. My my wife is going into labor with my first daughter. Mm-hmm. And I get a call from Chuck Creekmer saying Joe wants to talk to me. Mm. So I'm thinking he wants to get on the phone so we can talk about, you know, all the shots that I've been mm-hmm. taking at him. And we get on the phone. He's like, yo, Royce, what's up, man? Like, I want to get you on this joint. What? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, I want to get you. I want to get you on this joint. So this is a, this is like. I'm thinking to myself, like, this guy is fucking crazy. You know right. what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm like, you know what? All right. Right. I'll do it. Beef squash. So I left the hospital that night, went and laid the verse and sent it to him against my better judgment. Cause I started to just be like, motherfucker, you know what I'm saying? Right, like, right, right. I didn't do that. I went against my better judgment. I laid the verse. And that verse was on the song Slaughterhouse that started the group Slaughterhouse. Wow. So, you know, decisions, decisions. That's a movie, man. That's a movie. Yeah, that's a whole movie. Um, Now, one of my favorite things I've heard recently, or then here and I read it, is when you was, um, you was beefing with Yellow Wolf and you wrote to Dude and you said, uh, you think it's one way, but it's the other way. Where you get that phrase from? I never heard that phrase. I liked it. You know where I got it from. <laughs> I got it from Marlo on the wire. Is that where it's from? Mm-hmm. That's probably why I liked it. I, it was some, maybe it was something familiar about it. He said that he said that to the security guard on his way out when he stole when he stole the sucker from from the from the um from the little bodega store. Okay. And my man was like, "Man, you don't see me standing here. Like I seen you take it." Right. And he looked at him. He put the sucker in his mouth. And he looked him up and down. He said, "I know who you are." Uh-huh. Look, I don't want no problems. He was like, "Oh yeah, it's like you you think it's one way. You want it to be one way, right? You want it to be one way." And then Chris pulled up. Uh huh. He said, "But it's the other way." <laughs> and then he got. I in the like car. that one. Yeah, I like that one. Um, also on the song, so on the allegory, which is a project just came out this year. Um, great project, by the way. Thank you. Um, a song overcomer, West Side Gun, very good song. But you also talk about the Yellow Wolf situation on that. Um, you say men lie, women lie, so do numbers. He break that bar down? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. You know what I mean? Like, I think there was a point in time where um, I think Hove was the first person who I, who I heard say men lie, numbers lie. Men lie, women lie, numbers don't. Right, right, right. And um, I think when everything turned super digital, mm-hmm. um, the numbers started to look funny. You know what I mean? Like, mm. you know, like all of these, when you talk about algorithms and shit like that, all of these things can be manipulated, you know? So um, anywhere where there's large sums of money being generated, you know, there's a, there's an algorithm mm-hmm. and, you know, there's smoke to chase. There's corruption. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you can't go off the numbers. You can't go off the numbers. I believe that there's, you got the numbers and then you have energy. Mm-hmm. I believe the energy never lies. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Nipsey Hussle, you know, there was a certain amount of numbers that represented Nipsey Hussle when he was alive. But when Nipsey Hussle died, that energy was not a reflection of any of those numbers. Mm-hmm. It was something totally different. And it was mm-hmm. something that you couldn't turn down. You couldn't turn it up. You couldn't manipulate it. It just existed. You know what I'm saying? It was mm-hmm. the energy. You can't create it. You can't do any of that. You know what I mean? Like you can't create that in the boardroom. The energy is just the energy, you know, and that's right. that's something that's something that um, I think the artists who focus on that are the artists who are able to thrive during times like this. Right. Know? Because right. right now, 
you can't hide behind marketing dollars right now. So we're getting a, a vivid picture of what everybody has to offer to the culture. You know, mm-hmm. so a lot of people, you look at them and be like, wow, they're quiet. Mm-hmm. They just might not have shit to say or they mm-hmm. may not have shit to offer. You know what I mean? So everybody mm-hmm. can't pull off the same magic trick when the narrative is not being controlled by, you know, the powers that be, you know, and I think that's telling. Mm. Now, I've also read that the album, The Allegory, was named after a book, uh, The Allegory of the Cave by Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, your album titles are very powerful, very important. Um, what about that book inspired you to make this album? I just felt like um, it spoke about perspective. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like just, just, just the thought of like having people in a cave and, um, just, you know, you people been in the cave like for a certain amount of years and then you just take them out the cave. And then the first mm-hmm. time, the first time you look at the sun, you know, you have to squint your eyes. It'll hurt your eyes. Mm-hmm. First time you see a big body of water, you won't have the verbiage to describe even what you're seeing. You can't mm-hmm. go back into the cave and say, I seen a big body of water. You know what I mean? And 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 somebody can tell you, like, this is this is reality. This mm-hmm. is reality that you're looking at. And it doesn't become reality to you until you're willing to accept it as your reality. Because you may just opt to go back in the cave because at that moment that may be an easier option for you. You know, and I just I just thought that, that was telling with the way that we 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 take in information and we receive information. You know, you you have um, going to a public school in America, you have the info that you're given, mm-hmm. and then you have the truths that you can research and find and and determine, make that determination yourself and rather what you want to believe. You know, if you choose to believe that Christopher mm-hmm. Columbus founded America, if that's what makes you at peace, cool. <laughs> right. You know right. what I mean? And I just I just feel like right now, you know, with the pandemic and, you know, with somebody like Trump being in office, I feel like we are living in the allegory of the cave. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, I feel like it almost made me a prophet a little bit. Mm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, now, you produced this whole album, which mm-hmm. means that it's fully, fully your vision. Yeah. Um, you did a lot of sampling off of YouTube, not really vinyl. And you talked about how you were amazed at just what's available on YouTube. Walk us through your production process what does that look like for someone who wants to start making beats for someone who's like a race to five nine is like hey i want to do that too that's a tough one because i I mean i did the whole project learning Mm -hmm. learning how to make beats Mm -hmm. so um dj premier actually showed me um he sat on on facetime with me for two hours Mm. and walked me through how to use npc wow so um wow that's like a master class yeah, yeah, he walked me through. He walked me through it. So I was using the NPC for a while, and um, Mr. Porter is in my B room. So when I came back from out of town, Mr. Shout Porter, shout to kinda, Denon. Yeah, he kind of like heard some shit that I was working on. So he showed me Logic. When he showed me Logic, I already knew Pro Tools, and you know, they, it was like the same language. I kind of fell in love with that process, the process of using Logic. Mm-hmm. So um, just, I'm I'm a firm believer in practice makes anything close to perfect. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I feel like if you if you can dedicate yourself enough to just practice and you don't mind, you know what I mean? Like I, I drag myself through every type of, um, um, I drag myself through the gauntlet as a writer. You know what I mean? Right, so right, right. 
as a producer, I don't mind. I didn't mind making whack loop after whack loop after whack this after whack that. It was just like, and once I came up with the first thing that even gave me like a little bit of a thought to rap to, I just rapped to it. You know what right. I mean? One thing led to another. I had another beat maybe that I wanted to rap to. I was literally making like 20 beats each time to come up with one, mm-hmm. you know, because this is my first time, you know, making beats. And um, as I as I kept doing them, they started to get tighter. They started to get better and better. I'm a lot better now than I was when I was doing an album. Mm. You know what I mean? But I, I mean, you know, the, the process just kind of came together like that. Just a whole lot of practice. Mm. I read that you wanted the allegory to sound like Quentin Tarantino directed it. Now, Quentin Tarantino is one of my favorite directors. I think that's a good metaphor because what Quentin Tarantino does that I feel like is his greatest strength is he doesn't play by the rules at all and he utilizes all his influences. So if you take a movie like Kill Bill, it's got anime in it. It's got Japanese samurai shit in it. It's got hip hop in it. It's got Western, West old spaghetti Western music in it. Like sometimes it feels like a seventies black exploitation flick. Sometimes it feels like a horror movie. Everything that he was influenced by, it just, it just, he's throwing it in there. There's a real Mm -hmm. hip hop way to create and I feel like the allegory is you saying, I'm influenced by this. Let me throw this in here. I'm influenced mm-hmm. by that. Let me throw that in there. Like, there's no mm-hmm. rules to this shit. Do you feel like yep. you achieved what you wanted to achieve on the level of the Quentin Tarantino metaphor with this album? I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's not to say that it was as, it's as good as something Quentin Tarantino did. But mm-hmm. I think I think what Quentin Tarantino achieves every time he makes a movie is like you watch the movie and you 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 feel and you hear his his signature in there mm-hmm. like he's speaking to you you know what i mean mm-hmm. like you're not just watching a movie and you know like in, in hip-hop like one of my pet peeves right now just in the business is just i call them anecdotal facts man anecdotal <laughs> facts like right. people just regurgitate things they just regurgitate mm-hmm. things and they create these rules that you got to stick to yo mm-hmm. you know streaming streaming is going on right now so your songs can't be too long you gotta you know you can't have this you gotta you gotta make a song you got to speak to women when you want to, you got to make a song about women. So, right. so women will listen and all, you know what I'm saying? Like right. all of these fucking rules that really haven't been proven that they're, they're the truth. It's just mm-hmm. people just repeat them because it's the industry thing to do, you That's know? Right. So, and you know, like Kino is like one of the, one of the notorious motherfuckers who does that. So <laughs> when I'm talking to Kino and everything that he tries to like force on me, it's like, no, now that you said that, I'm going to make the song even longer now. I'm going to make the verse even longer. And I'm right. going to do everything <laughs> that people say I can't do just to show you what fucking difference does it make? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I mean? So I just, I kind of wanted it to just, my sick anti-everything personality, I kind of wanted to shine through a little bit, even at the risk of, um, I, I'm just real big on taking creative, like, chances you know what i mean like i'm an airport late guy you know what i mean like <laughs> airport early people that's like those are like managers you know right. what i mean like <laughs> you speak to a manager a manager has to get to the airport early right and they're always going to tell you i like to get there early so i can do some work on my laptop <laughs> it never fails <laughs> so like with me i like the boarding room door to be open when I come up to the gate, I don't like sitting in the airport. You know, I like to go right on the airport and then it take off and then I can go to sleep. That's just me. I'm an artist. I like living on the edge. I need some sort of, I need shit to be edgy. You know what I mean? So yeah. I don't like safe. Safe is corny. I don't like safe. I don't like, 
I don't like just staying in a, you know, a safe place. You know, if I, if I just went, you know, like my style is, you know, lyrical miracle, you know what I'm saying? Like that's mm-hmm. a safe place for me. I need to be able to push myself outside of that. I don't like um, making a song specifically for radio. That's a safe place. I don't like that. You know what I mean? Like, I just like to, you know, do exactly every album to be a reflection of exactly who I am at the time. And um, for it not to be, for it not to just speak for a side of me, like how my music used to do. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't like living a double life. I like being the same guy at the crib as I am on the records. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, live in the center of my truth. You know what I mean? There's a freedom in that. Yeah. It's liberating. Yeah. Uh, Griselda's all over that album. Can you explain your relationship and uh, how the lyrical respect flows there? Yeah. I mean, we when I first heard them, actually, my brother Alchemist played them. He played Conway and Gun for me mm-hmm. on a flight we were on um, going to do one of Marshall shows. And um, shit, I thought they were incredible. You know, so mm-hmm. I was working on a mixtape called Trust the Shooter. And um I was talking to my boy Mike Ron again. And um he Mike knew Ron is always around. Yep, yep. So he knew them. So I was like, yo, I reached out to them through him. Um, I put him on a song called The Banjo with with me, Styles P and them. So um that was like um that was like a lot of people's first time hearing them because they were like really, really niche back then. Yeah, yeah. Um I mean they they were coming regardless. They were coming. You know what I mean? Like sooner or later they were gonna break, they were gonna cut through. So um I worked with him way back then. I was proud to say that. You know what I'm saying? Like I was mm-hmm. proud that I worked with him way back then. And um I invited them out to um to my release, my release joint at SOBs, and they they drove all the way from Buffalo to come do the show with me, you know. Mm-hmm. And we developed a relationship after that. Um when they ended up signing with Shady, which had nothing to do with me. It was mm-hmm. to- a totally separate thing. Um, they ended up at Heaven Studios, you know, like and we Every time they come in town, you know what I mean? Like they come to my studio, you know, it'd be niggas laid out on all on couches and <laughs> and, 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 and luggage and shit sprawled all, all everywhere. My home is their home and we've been family ever since. You know what mm. I mean? So, you know, it's deeper, it's deeper than music with them. That's love. I can tell that with the music that you make with them. It mm-hmm. feels like fit real family. Um yeah. In the song with you got with uh, Benny the Butcher, you say, I'm going to quote you, you say, focus on the art, not the wave. Everybody talking about they own their master. But if the music don't age well, it don't matter. It's like you own 100% of nothing. Know your value. Can you expand on this idea? Is the fact that you're always putting quality over everything the secret to all your success? Um, I, 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 You know what? I find that... Um, when I don't chase things and I just I just allow them to happen, I don't force things. Mm-hmm. That's when it works out the best for me. I don't think that there's like a um, there's like a thing that I have that I do that guarantees me any success. I just feel like it's a roll of the dice, and you know it's just art at the end of the day. I mm-hmm. feel like um, being able to put perspective to things. You know, like if you can't put perspective to things, and they just become anecdotal facts. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I tell you mm-hmm. save your money, you know, like that. Seems like great advice, you know, from from somebody that's 75 years old. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're basically just telling me to take my money and put it somewhere. You know what I mean? Right. Like, mm-hmm. I could take it and put it anywhere you want me to put it. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. without perspective, I'm going to probably need that money at some point. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. the, the thing is, how about adding a little bit to it? How about telling, teaching them financial literacy? 
You know what I mean? So instead of everybody just being like, yo, I own my masters just for a wave. How about putting the effort into the art? So not only can you own your masters, but they'll actually be worth something because mm -hmm. the key is to take the platform that you have, that you've been afforded, understanding exactly what it is that you are and then building something that can serve you for long periods of time. That's what you're here to do. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, you know, it takes a long time to realize that we're not here to become fucking famous. You know what That's I mean? Right. That's right. For some, for some people, you know, like there's no coming back from that. They, they realize that too late. And then it's like, boom, because it's set up for you to chew you up and spit you out. It's not set up for your success, set up mm -hmm. for you to fail. You know That's what I mean? Right. There's, right. a, there's a, there's a, there's a fucking laundry list, laundry list of things for you to learn. Mm -hmm. that whoever you're signing to, they know all of these things, but they're not going to show you any of them. You know what I mean? Because right. there's more profit in your ignorance yeah, than it is for you to know. You know, And no label is here to build your brand. That's not their job. Their job is just to make money. You know, mm -hmm. so it's the second you realize that and, you know, you're making decisions for you as opposed to making some record that's going to fit some, you know, like it's going to fit some playlist or, you mm -hmm. know, some, some radio, uh, agenda or something like that because you know we come into the game we can pretty much do whatever quiet you can write any kind of record you know what i mean mm -hmm. like yeah the key is to know what's the record for you they can't do tell you that only you only you can tell them that that's you right know what i mean that's right and the only thing that does not depreciate is that good art yeah. you know when we talk about the at times of antiquity to now the only things that everything else depreciate the money the the fame you can't take none of it with you but the art you could pass that down from generation mm -hmm. to generation. Um, can you talk to us about your new position on the board of Eminem's charity, the Marshall Mathers Foundation? I'm basically gonna. I'm coming to the table. Um, my initial my initial role is just to be one of the people who helps with the disseminating of the funds. You know, so um, my goal coming in is just to make sure to kind of help out to make sure that the, the funds go to the right places and we actually see results as opposed to just being, you know, one of those situations where we're just throwing a whole bunch of money at a whole bunch of different things. So my goal, um, starting with Detroit, and I'm, we, we're going to obviously expand to other cities, is just to, to launch initiatives as opposed to just donating. Launch initiatives that can be longstanding, that can, you know, that can outlast, you know, in case this is just another wave, you mm -hmm. know, because I'm, I'm prepared to protest for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I'm prepared to. That's what it's going to be. You know, but at the end of the day, I also see this as a as an opportunity to kind of um, put in pu put in place and in position some of the things that we're lacking. You know, like a lot of people use the term white privilege. Well, what are some of the things that white people? What are some of the amenities that white people have that we don't have? And whatever those are, instead of waiting on white people oh, to do these things for us, let's do them ourselves because yeah. we have. Guys such as myself, such as Mr. Mr. Quali, you know what I mean? Like we have guys that made it out of the element, you know, who are the, 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 the generators of predatory capital, who it's our job to turn around and then stimulate that same area that we came from and put some of those some of those systems in place and launch the initiatives th that are going to turn things around. It's up to us to do it. You know what I mean? And to me, it's part of success. It's just a part of success. Yeah, man. I like that. Do for self. 
Nine mm-hmm. to self, do for self, each one teach one. Ladies and gentlemen, Royce to Five Nine has joined the People's Party. And we love you and we appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you, my brother. I love y'all too, man. I love the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, man.